0: I tried to understand what parts of my work was the most impactful. I realized that it was the stuff that I did in public, and sometimes got wrong in public, that contributed most to my learning. When people criticize your work, they're not criticizing you, they're criticizing the work that was produced by some past version of you. So you should agree with the people who are criticizing you. The way I phrase it is that you can learn so much on the internet for the low, low price of your ego.
1: Hello, and welcome to Developer Love, the podcast for people who build developer communities. We'll hear from people working to win the hearts and minds of developers, including founders, execs, and the top minds in developer relations, dev marketing, and community management. I'm Patrick Woods, the CEO of Orbit, the community experience platform. Developer Love is brought to you by Heavybit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Today, I'm speaking with Swix. Swix has worked on developer experience for companies like Netlify, AWS, and Temporal. He's also the author of The Coding Career Handbook and helps run the Svelte Society community of meetups. Awesome, Swix. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really excited to have this conversation. I'm sure lots of folks are aware of who you are and probably follow you on Twitter, but for those that don't, would you mind giving us a little bit of an overview about who you are and what you're working on?
0: Sure, thanks for having me on. Uh, been enjoying the podcast and this is my second heavy bit podcast <laughs> alongside Jamstack Radio. So I'm Sean. I also go by Swix. That's my English and Chinese initials. It's a complicated history, but I was at Netlify, passed through AWS, and most recently just left AWS to join Temporal. And have been primarily active in the front-end slash serverless space. And I've been very interested in, in this whole idea of developer experience. I did not know to call it developer love until I came across Orbit. Um, And I think Orbit's model is fascinating and and really nails it. But to me, the way I've been breaking down developer experience is developer tooling and developer communities. So kind of straddling both. I was a moderator of the r slash react.js subreddit going from about 40,000 members to over 200,000. Recently stepped down from that to help run the Svelte Society, which is the community organization for the Svelte framework. And I think it's just a magical thing to be able to enable a community around a certain technical topic. Yeah, thanks to the overview. So you mentioned developer
1: experience as a concept and a practice that you're very interested in. What do you think led to
0: that point for you? Honestly, it was Netlify branding their developer relations people as developer experience engineers, which I was pretty skeptical about because. If you are DevRel, just say you're DevRel, don't don't try to put some unique spin on it. <laughs> but then I think they really envisioned something bigger than traditional DevRel, which was building out integrations and also working on community building, which is not like me talking to everyone, but also enabling others to talk to everyone else. And so I think many to many is is a really noble goal. It's very challenging, obviously, because you have to influence without any formal authority. But it's also a, a very appealing goal economically, because uh, then you don't have to scale the number of employees uh, linearly with your number of users, which I think uh, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> so You mentioned developer
1: experience for you is really comprised of, of tooling and communities. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between
0: those two pillars? I don't know if I have a formal relationship in my head. The framework that I come from is actually from Cheng Lu, who used to be on the React core team. I think he's on the the Reason or Rescript core team now. And he gave the talk at uh, Facebook's internal conference called Taming the Meta Language. And the argument of that, it's a very good talk. I, I recommend people check it out. The argument of that talk was essentially that every programming language or every framework has a core and a periphery, and the more developed it gets, the, the the core, which is kind of like the code that runs, is a smaller and smaller part of it. And really, the the meta language starts to go around it, which involves tutorials, docs, workshops, community, jobs, third party libraries, yada yada. And so, in his original slides, he had a lot of he had like a long list of you know these things that are wrapping around a very popular framework, which for him was React, but you know you can, you can extend this to basically anything. But for me, I think it essentially just breaks down to, okay, the code that is not core, but makes all the developer experience much better. So that's developer tooling. And then developer communities, which is all the people around the, the code, which isn't core to the code, but makes using that code a lot better. So it's just code and people. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I love that. So as, as a project or a framework grows, the core maybe becomes smaller as a percentage of the overall footprint with the, the periphery, the meta language increasing. What's that tipping point look like, do you think, when it switches from code to community being the bigger part?
0: Yeah, this is something you can tie into Jeffrey Moore's idea of crossing the chasm. So uh, for people who haven't heard about this, it's like a five-stage adoption process going from 0% of the total population to 100% of the total population. And then it's a bell curve from 0 to 100. So the early stage is kind of the hobbyist, like super early adopter types. The only thing that they care about is, this is cool, uh, I can hack on this in the weekends, and this is technically better in on some basis. right? Like, like in theory, I really want this thing to exist. I look at all the existing solutions out there, none of them fit me. Because I have very specific needs. And they don't need a lot of documentation. They don't look for other people, like, is this used in production by some big company that I recognize? They don't think about stuff like that. They're just like, does this fit a very specific need that I have? That's it. If it does, good. That's enough for them. But the majority of people don't work like that, right? Uh, They do want to see documentation. They want to see a, a thriving job market. They want to see that, like, you know, whatever Netflix has used this in production. All that stuff that's like not core to the code, but does provide some measure of faith that this is tested at scale, that this is reliable and dependable and a good technical bet. so as you go from early adopters, you cross the chasm into the early majority and the and the late majority. The requirements of the early adopters versus the majority are very different. The early adopters require a lot less. <laughs> essentially, handholding. like I, I'm not trying to like, you know demean the people in the majority. They just have different needs uh, for that specific domain. And the people in the majority are more conservative, probably as a good measure of technological conservatism. Like, uh, you don't bet early on everything because you're going to get burned. <laughs> so, I think it just makes sense to bet early on some things where it really, really counts and then just be conservative, use boring technology on everything else. But it does make a lot of sense that the the crossover is a very challenging thing because when you start a framework, where you start a programming language, you're just like one person or like a small team just kind of hacking away, right? Like you just care about the code and making it run fast or more securely or like have special features that nothing else in the world has. That's great. And then suddenly like a community grows around you and then they're asking for things like can you make better docs can you integrate with my thing? this doesn't work well with my existing world and you're like, okay sure like wh- I want you to be happy but that, that takes you further and further away from like just working on the thing itself So I think as a project grows in importance and adoption by the, the majority of the community you, you start to embrace different parts of the population with different needs and I think that, that's the crossover point. I mean, I don't have a number for you, but (laughs) people typically peg it at like, I don't know, like, you know, 5% or 10% of the population where it really starts just crossing over already uh, because there are a lot of people in the middle. Hmm. Thinking about your experience with the React
1: subreddit, what were some of the learnings or observations you had as that community
0: scaled through those different phases? It's a challenging one because Reddit is a constrained format. It's a it's actually a link aggregator with upvoting in some comments. So you know, JavaScript is the largest programming language, and React is the largest framework within JavaScript. You know, arguably, there, there's some there's some other measures. But when you have such a large community like this and a constrained format where you know basically only one link or one question can be in the top position when you sort by upvotes, then there's a matter of like. What target audience do we want to target? Because there are a lot more beginners than there are advanced people, but people come for engaging, advanced, knowledgeable conversations. So there's always this tension between there's a lot of beginners who don't know any better and we should be welcoming to them, of course. But at the same time, if we make it too beginner-focused, the advanced people go away (laughs) and and it will kind of lose its, uh, its quality. So there's a very challenging tension, one of the ways that in which we solve that is to basically contain the beginner questions to a dedicated thread and that's something that i did when i was starting out basically like the promise you make is that you'll answer every single question that gets goes in there which is a step up from stack overflow where you can ask a question and it just gets crickets right and so that contains the the beginner questions and allows other types of content to to come up which can be more advanced and you kind of try to make the two Extremes happy, even though you you can never really do a fantastic job. So there are other ways, which you can, for example, you can fork the community and create a specifically beginner focused one. But then you know you get what you get, which is that there won't be that many experienced people frequenting that subreddit. Uh, therefore, the answers may not be as good, or you just have a glut of people asking questions and nobody around to answer them.
1: Mm. Yeah, in terms of tactics, were you the one answering the questions in the beginner thread, or were there other moderators that
0: jumped in, or did the community help out? I started doing that. So there were some months where it was like 500 questions and answers, and the vast majority of them were me. Wow. And it's not so bad once you find repeats, then you can just copy and paste. But uh, I think when you're sort of leading the community, you do have to lead by example. And then people who see what you're doing and in the service of the community, start to jump in and help out. That's where I recruited a couple of my other fellow moderators because I saw that they took the initiative and joined in with no expectation of any personal benefit. They're just like serving the community. I think there, there is some personal benefit in the sense of like you get to answer all these questions and you, you strengthen your own knowledge, which is really good. And you also understand the pain points. So you can go write blog posts and articles and even libraries to, to solve those pain points. So having a very close ear to the ground for like what people are facing helps you just be relevant to everyone else. So I think there's a lot of benefits to doing that. But yeah, it's a, it's actually a good pretty pretty good recruiting ground. Basically like if you want to be a leader of the community just act like it and people will see what you're doing and then they'll, you know, formally give you that position. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you mentioned that by being heavily involved with these beginner questions things like that that, you know, it, it Leads to inspiration for blog posts, tutorials, code, things like that. We think a lot about the second order of effects of an active community, and one of those is is content like that. Where if you have a thriving community, one second order effect is you probably have ideas for blog posts, guides, tutorials, things like that. And I'm not sure everyone realizes the sort of power of, of that type of uh, of output.
0: Oh yeah, we have like people who teach React for a living. They actually go through the Reddit to like sort of browse for people's pain points so that they can write articles. It's pretty effective. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're working today with
1: Svelte Society.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about
1: what you're working on there and uh, the sort of nature of the community that's around that?
0: Yeah, so Svelte Society started off as a meetup in New York because I was friends with Rich Harris who created Svelte. And I had basically ignored him for a full year because I was so deep into React that I was just like, I don't need a new framework in my life. And I think we were both speaking at a conference and he gave a really convincing talk where I was, I, I reached a point where I was just like, okay, like, I got to try this thing out. And of course I was impressed. Uh, of course it solved major pain points that I had with React. And I just ignored him for a year because I'm, I'm one of those, you know, not early adopter types. So there was a meetup that was going to happen in London, which was going to be this first Svelte meetup in the world and I was like we can't have that we have we're in New York we have Rich Harris in New York we need a meetup as well so I just like decided to like tweet that like I wanted to launch a meetup I had no speakers no guest list no venue I just set a date that that was it and then this just people got together and within a week, we actually organized a, a meetup with 50 people. Wow. In a, um, Someone from Microsoft stepped up and offered their location. And we did our, our, the first, the very first Felt meetup, just kind of scooping London. <laughs> and um, eventually uh, Stockholm also did one. So eventually the three of us got together when, when COVID hit, the three organizers from New York, London, and Stockholm got together and and, and then we created... Uh, Svelte Society as a global online community. Mm-hmm. So we've done two conferences. We're we're about to have our third in April, and uh, you know a few, a few thousand developers. I, I think we're at seven thousand something, and it's a small, tiny community. But it's actually a lot of fun growing something from scratch rather than taking over something halfway and and growing it to something already huge. So I'm I'm enjoying that difference in vibe. I think that. Developer communities where you are not the default. So everyone comes to you as the second framework or the second tooling is a very nice position to be in because you get people who know what they're coming to you for. For example, like when people choose React, they just choose React because they're told to do it, right? Like they, they don't actually know the difference between JavaScript and React, or they don't know anything else apart from React. And so there, some of their questions might be very, off topic <laughs> or or just kind of not discerning. Like they don't actually know what they want. I, I kind of call this like second framework syndrome, which is, which is actually like a positive. So I, I'm, I need a different word than syndrome. But essentially like once you've had a tool, once you've picked one tool in some domain and you've gone on to the second tool, you're much more discerning and you're less likely to identify so strongly with one tool because if you've left a tool before, you're never going to say, like, okay, this is the, the solution for everything because you might leave the tool for something else again. Whereas I think people who are first time to a framework or to a tool might be too loyal to it and try to solve everything with it. And that's a recipe for, for pain. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the, the classic advertising
1: campaign from Avis. Uh, they were number two in the market. And so this is sort of like 1950s, 1960s, kind of Mad Men era. And their whole campaign was, hey, we're number two, so we'll try harder. For your business, yeah,
0: <laughs> it's great. I mean, you know, acknowledge that you don't have the the top spot, uh, but there are things that you can still bring that people still really value. And if you just say that, I, I think people uh, recognize it and respect that.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, I, I do deal with a lot of marketing types in my line of work, and I don't like marketing that just denies reality. Like, I, I think it's way better to just accept it head on, call it out. Like the other famous example is dominoes, right? Like they're just like, hey, everyone! Like, we know our pizza sucks. Uh, we revamped it. Come try us out, and it worked. <laughs> Big time, yeah.
1: Well, this reminds me of a tweet you shared recently of talking about the the advice to talk about benefits versus features. But your view is that the 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 opposite is true for developers. For developers, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about features and benefits when it comes to communicating with developers?
0: Yeah, this is one I kind of struggle with back and forth, and specifically, the tweet is about me relearning it. Mm. So the advice in traditional marketing is to sell benefits over features, right? P- sell people on the vision of what they will be with you rather than without you, instead of like your specific how you get there. And that's why, I guess, when you know people sell perfume or clothes or whatever, they they show you you know someone in a fancy dress or uh, you know some some dude with a with a fancy watch on a yacht or something. You know, like it's sort of association and. and that's how you do marketing in a traditional sense but i think developers have been lied to too much where <laughs> we just stop believing in people in marketing so if you tell me your library is blazing fast i don't know what that means mm-hmm. you know so like tell me why it's fast or like show me why it's fast don't just tell me that it's fast because like sure that, that's a benefit like obviously that's an improvement to my workflow but if i don't know why it's fast then i i'm not going to accept it on faith because I've been burned too much or I'm not going to be able to explain it to the rest of my team or my boss when I try to adopt it at work. You have to have a logical reason because there's also going to be a trade-off, right? Like there's no free lunch in, in I mean, there are some free lunches but usually there's no free lunch. You have to be able to answer the the question of like, what am I giving up in order to get this benefit? And usually, marketing you only tell, talk about the benefits and you don't talk about the <laughs> the the sacrifices. Mm. And I think the the most concise way to do all of that is to tell you how it works, like show you under hood and give you the the logical explanation for okay, all these alternative solutions that you're used to, they all use this legacy format, and we use a different format that is just way optimized without those legacy assumptions. In exchange for all these, you know, benefits, it will not be compatible with some legacy features that you now no longer care about, and you're like, ah, okay, that that is me, and I'm sold. But if you skip all of that and just go like, this will be faster, mm. I can't get behind that. Um, so I think that's my insight in developer marketing that 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 we want to know how it works. <laughs> I think that's which is partially why open source is something that's so appealing as well. Like we we are able to see the code. Yeah.
1: Do you think that the Continuum from features to benefits. Do you think that where the messaging lands on the timeline maps to where a potential user is on the chasm? You know, maybe early adopters care more about how it works and late majorities
0: worry about. Exactly. Yeah yeah so I got some pushback on my on my tweet saying like people don't understand how react works and it's a black box to most people and that's true but because react has already crossed the chasm um, it doesn't have to so uh, I definitely am focused more towards early adopters because I guess I work on earlier stage companies um if you're IBM nobody knows how Watson freaking <laughs> what is Watson I don't know but it does Jeopardy, <laughs> 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 like I. I don't talk to the tile developers that buy IBM, but, you know. And no shade on them. Like it, it, just it just really like I think when you're dealing on cutting edge stuff, you really have to open the the hood.
1: Yeah, agreed. Shifting gears a bit, you champion the idea of learning in public, and you describe your writing on this topic as your most impactful essay. So I'm, I'm really curious. How did the concept of learning in public
0: become so central for you and your work? I think that it was a reflection of when you look back on your work for the past year, for me, it was like the past six months, and try to understand what parts of my work was the most impactful and what parts of my work didn't matter at all. I realized that it was the stuff that I did in public and sometimes got wrong in public that contributed most to my learning. And I think this idea, this name for it, I actually got from Kelsey Hightower, who is sort of Mr. Kubernetes now. But he's very much uh, someone who learns in public. Like something that he just learned, he'll share it because it's it was valuable to him from three to six months ago. Therefore, it will probably be valuable to a lot of other people. It may not be like the most insightful thing in the world. He's not presenting himself as the expert on something, but that's not going to stop him from sharing something fundamental that he learned, which is useful. And if you do that, you're not only learn faster because you get feedback from other people, both from people who know more than you and also people who, you know, are, are sort of with you in your journey. But also you you get to demonstrate your interests, which is very good for your career. Like it's a two-way street. Like it turns your network from like an outbound network, like you reach out whenever you need a job, to an inbound network. Like people understand what you're into and they reach out to you for stuff that you are interested in. And I think that's a fundamentally different way mode of operation than most developers are used to and they don't even realize that this is possible. They're like, oh you gotta be internet famous to do this. And sure, like you can get internet famous by doing this. But to me that's not the goal. The goal is to just have a record of what you learned. Because when we do interviews, for example, we try to have this like really lossy compression algorithm. Like we compress all that we are, all that we can do, all that we've done. Into one piece of paper and hope that the other side has the right decompression algorithm <laughs> yeah. to unpack that. And then we complain about how broken the, the hiring process is because we, we stick to this completely useless thing. It's much better to have a let's say like a, a site or a GitHub that just shows like I've been interested in this, I've been hacking on this for three years, and here's all the things I've done. It's instantly verifiable. It's kind of like a cryptographic proof of work. And you don't need some massive following for that. All you need to do is actually do good work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's a tangible example of of learning in public? Like, what does that look like in practice?
0: So, one of my talks was about how React hooks work under the hood because hooks were a major feature of React that that was launched in 2018. And a lot of people were talking about it and sort of not trusting it because it was a little bit magical. So I thought about this question and then I tried to make a small clone of it. And it was just a very simple, like 29-line proof of concept. And I tweeted it out. And this is a career hack as well. Whenever you tweet about a company's products or a framework's you know, features, probably the people who wrote that feature will see it. Especially if there's a company involved, they'll have a Slack channel hooked up to their, their company's Twitter account. Like that's how it works, right? And so Danny Bramov from the React Core team actually saw it and It was like almost there, there were some flaws. So he actually gave me suggestions to correct it, and I just went and did it. And then that actually got a lot of traction. So that actually led to a blog post, that actually led to a workshop that was conducted with AKIO, and then eventually a conference talk at JSConf. That was my biggest talk to date. And all that just because I tweeted out a tiny thing that I was trying to work out myself. And I could not have got there without help, uh, without feedback from other people. And the other thing is, I would never have thought that this was something that I could do, like do a completely live-coded presentation on stage without all this validation and support and help. And it's one of those things where you don't know what you have until people sometimes pull it out of you when you share it. Hmm. It just wouldn't have happened if I, if I didn't share it. Have you seen this concept work for non-technical people as well? I think so. So I used to be in finance and I still follow a lot of investing Uh, people in the investing sphere. So Patrick O'Shaughnessy is, I guess, a well-known investor by now. Uh, His approach is very much in the learn in public phrase as as well. So he he also uses that term. Uh, But he uses it to talk about the industries that he invests in, right? Like he can be much more in-depth in, let's say, uh, minerals or energy. But let's say if he wants to learn about tech or consumer retail or shipping, like he can just invite a guest and go to go on his podcast and they talk about it. And that's a form of learning in public as well. You know, you're putting your beacon out there and having real conversations. You're never presenting yourself as an expert, but you become an expert if you do this enough. And the rate of learning is way faster than if you just did everything in private. So the, the argument is very much like you're not putting everything in public, but if you put just a little bit, you actually get a lot of benefits mm. uh, because there's such a great network effect to learning in public.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to think about the like the gradient of self-editing that has to happen You know, when you're deciding what to put in public versus
0: what not to share. Yeah. And some people, especially women, um, have to do more editing just because they get attacked more. And that's really unfortunate, but it happens. And I think you have to have a thick skin. Actually, my preferred way of saying that you should have a thick skin is that you should divorce your identity from your work. When people criticize your work, they're not criticizing you, they're criticizing the work that was produced by some past version of you and if you're growing at all you should look back on your work like a year from now and just say that was totally horrible so you should agree with the people who are criticizing you and in fact if you build a reputation of someone who takes criticism well then they'll criticize you more and you'll learn more and if you just don't take it personally and if as long as they don't they don't make personal attacks at you of course that's not acceptable but if you don't take it personally then yeah like you're totally fine. Um, so the, the the way I phrase it is that you can learn so much on the internet for the low, low price of your ego, <laughs> and just get your ego out, out of the way. Are you are you here to be good, or are you here to feel good? Hmm. That's
1: a pretty fundamental distinction that m- not many people may may draw. Hmm. So you, you've you mentioned before the idea of learning in public, and the phrase you use is, is building a habit of creating learning exhaust, which I think is very poetic. What do you think the relationship is between learning in public and the communities you're a part of?
0: You know, How do those two aspects interplay for you, do you think? So there's a selfish reason and then there's a selfless reason. The selfless reason is that I think we need to make it easier for people to learn in public, to create receptive and welcoming communities that recognize that you're just trying to improve yourself just like everyone else is improving themselves. And sometimes we don't have a space for that. And when we don't have a space for that, we kind of just clam up and just not try. So if we just foster a community of people who are all uh, improving and working on things, I I think that's just, just a better net positive for the world and net positive for everyone in that community. The selfish reason for that is that there's a scaling law that scales beyond me. So the way I think about this is that uh, there are a few scaling laws. So people are very familiar with Metcalfe's law in, in tech, which is that um, uh, you know the value of a network scales according to a square of its number of nodes, and that's analogous to me having a very big Rolodex, you know, air quotes, which is like um, my my friends list is very long, and I can call upon these as as, as uh, experts or friends or mentors whenever I want. That's really good, but it could be better, which is what's better than Maccalf's law? Maccalf's law is great, but what's really explosive is Reed's law. So Reed's law is sort of an exponential growth of the number of nodes because each of the number of nodes can form subgroups independently of the central node, which is why the reason why Facebook, when it grows, it's the the value of Facebook grows not as a number of the members. It also grows by the number of interest groups within Facebook right? That's why Facebook groups are, is so powerful to, to, as, a, as a value addition to Facebook to the point where most people just use Facebook today for Facebook groups. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Facebook just doesn't care, doesn't have to know. And you can be in, in, in a thousand different groups and it, it doesn't matter, and, but, but they're all valuable to you. Okay. So what, what, how does that tie back to community? A community is a many to many sort of ongoing sustaining relationship between all of them. And me being able to grow them I grow at that accelerated pace faster than Metcalf's Law. Because Metcalf's Law is sort of limited by Dunbar's number. Like, like sorry, I'm I'm pulling in so many concepts. But like the, there's a limit to the number of people that I could possibly know. But if I enable each of them to talk to each other and collaborate with with each other, then I benefit as well. Partially because, you know, I I help to um, be a central member of that community, but then also, when I find them, they will be innovating without me there, and that's a benefit to me as well, whether I realize it or not. Yeah, the,
1: the distinction between reads and Metcalf's law is really quite fascinating.
0: That's community. It really is. Like Metcalf's law, like sort of scales, but it's it's so much effort to add each node because you you have this central dependency, right? Which is you know, let's say the company or like the the core team of a framework but once you have a community then they're just all interacting on their own basis and you don't really have a say which is a little bit worrying because it's kind of out of your control it's adding value to your network whether you realize it or not hmm. so a lot of orbit's customers and folks in our own
1: community have this question where they're they're early in their journey many of their early community members are just users of their product you know the early adopters we would call that or the orbit one and they're starting to ask this question of, you know, what's the tipping point when a community goes from mostly people talking to the company about the product or the project to talking to each other about the project, but ideas and their their job and and broader concepts. You know, can you can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you've seen that occur and if there are any tools or tactics or frameworks that the project maintainers or the company founders can Implement to accelerate that that tipping point.
0: Yeah, I think I definitely am not the authority on this because I haven't seen this occur too much. Uh, I've I've seen instances of it, and I just don't know if I have the authoritative story. Like if I came over and if I said like this is the general theory of <laughs> how to make networks, I, I think I'd be a millionaire. Like that, that that's a that's very valuable information. I, 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 but I'm actively researching this. So with all that said. I think that what can be very helpful is that you make the identities and the interest graphs of your members of your network discoverable to each other. So a lot of times when you hire a community manager, their job is to know the community members very well, and they typically store it in their heads. But if you have a listing of them where people can actually independently search and and discover, then you really find that independent connections start taking shape. But you as, as someone who manages that community needs to make that happen um, because it's, it's not going to happen in an, any organized fashion on its own. So one of the ways in which I think it, I, I do see it happening very effectively for a company or a framework is sort of an official partner designation. So you do have the ability to bless some people as like the recognized experts. So at AWS, we have AWS heroes. Like We'll, we'll anoint like external parties as serverless heroes or data heroes or machine learning heroes. These will be sort of recognized experts. I just saw that Webflow actually and Vercel have Webflow experts or like a Vercel partners program where these are sort of the key integrators, like system integrators, I think they're called, or like agencies or whatever you call it that are very keen on working with webflow so then they get their get a lot of benefit from associating themselves with you as experts or just as long as they derive significant value from like hiring or like finding business off of you then they're they're very engaged community members and they're very incentivized to contribute to the value of your community and it's just like a reinforcing loop because as you build that then more people know to come to your community to find these people and because more people come to find these people then Uh, more people on the supply side sign up and it's like a demand and supply side sort of marketplace type of thing. So I do think that marketplace is like kind of the ultimate business model. I I, I am a huge fan of marketplaces, but it can be hard to start. And sometimes you have to bootstrap one side versus the other. But essentially what you're doing is a marketplace (laughs) where you, you set the rules, you make it easy for people to transact and you establish like reputation systems, you establish trust, you establish like this conflict or dispute resolution mechanisms, these are all traditional forms of a marketplace. But you can actually bring that all those lessons, all of it, to communities. I love marketplace
1: as a metaphor for community.
0: The other thing that you can do as well is to organize events, because I think we as humans like we like okay most of the time we like async. Uh, we like to do things on our own. We like to build our own networks on uh, independently. But every few months we love special occasions to like announce some things and to gather for to celebrate something like you know like a woodstock or <laughs> i don't know basically a conference but like you know the definition of a conference is changing it in in uh, the covid world but another thing that you can do is uh, definitely organize events where people just get together and sometimes it can just be like a small dinner you know let, let's say so we can all meet up again in person um you can just like have like a, a day when everyone just gets together and just talks. And you as a community organizer, that's a minimum viable marketplace, which is just like, hey, everyone, we're all going get, to get together in this room at this time and day, which is what I, kind of what I did for my my meetup, right? There's no economic transaction. You're not taking a fee or anything, but you're just making it possible for people to find each other. That's a marketplace. Thinking more broadly about communities in general, what are some... What are some trends
1: that you've been seeing in the way communities are being built, or platforms they're using, or methods you're seeing? You know, as as we go into 2021, and what are some of the community building concepts that you're excited about? Oh, I'm so into this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, to, to the point where, like, I I do have like an ongoing sort of research collection about dev communities and and people who are innovating in the community space. I always thought that things were sort of going online, things were going asynchronous, and then Clubhouse kind of changed everything for me. <laughs> I realized that people actually like sort of real-time connection and the ability to, to ask questions and participate and, and, and chat. Um, and sometimes video is an anti-feature, which is another interesting concept, right? Because Zoom was the darling and now Clubhouse is. And Clubhouse is like Zoom, but worse. <laughs> um. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think people are realizing that connection is is real. Um having events like a clear before and after is 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 a real thing, which I think is a reversal of some of the trends that we were seeing like we we were moving towards more async online chat-based communities and I think now we're seeing some revival in in live events and and live ongoing discussions and spontaneity and imperfection. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I, I'm not really sure. I have uh, like okay. So the other thing that that's sort of also happening is cohorts, right? Like, uh, which Wes Cow and Gagambiani from Udemy are, are sort of championing, which is basically communities gated by when people join. So most communities they're just open all, at all times. So you just come on in whenever, and whenever someone says hi, they're just like, okay, oh, it's it's another person. It's like not something special. But when you make something into a cohort, suddenly groups have identities. Like, I oh, I'm sort of class of spring 2019. That's, you know, that's Y Combinator, right? But that's also college, you know, and That's that's also a cohort of communities. And those cohorts are sort of pre-built, like it's an event. Everyone is new and everyone knows that there's a, a group that's going through the same experience as they are. But then there's also a broader group with more experience than they are, and they can access that as well. I think cohorts are an interesting twist On how people run communities. Like, none of this is new, right? Like, but we're just taking lessons from maybe other domains and applying it to online communities that may may not have been applied before. And I think, you know, like, I I wish I could go back in time and tell myself from three years ago all this stuff because I didn't didn't know any of this. But now it's obvious. I mean, it's obvious to me because I I watch all these people closely. Like, maybe people who are listening, if it's not obvious to you, like, sit up and listen because this is real. This is very valuable, and this is happening at a very, very fast pace. Where would you suggest people tune in? You know, the, the resources or people that you follow that are particularly insightful when it comes to these topics. Yeah, Wes Cow is pretty much leading the, the cohort-based course league. Uh, Rosie Sherry from Indie Hackers is definitely collating a, a lot of uh, community news. There's also Greg Eisenberg, who he runs a, He runs a consultancy that starts communities for people. The only problem I have with him is that he thinks of himself very highly. So he rubs people the wrong way, I think. Mm -hmm. But he does have valuable insights, which is very frustrating because, like, you know, sometimes arrogant people are worth it. Yeah. (laughs) I think the complete opposite
1: of of someone like Rosie, who's like, (laughs) <laughs> Such an intellectual heavy hitter, but also so humble.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got more resources for you. So by the way, uh, I collect all this in my Circle community. So codingcareer.circle.so is where I collect all this information. So uh, there's Get Together, which is a book and podcast for people who form communities. There's CMX Hub, which is uh, David Spinks, who's been doing this a while as well. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of people in this community space. Oh, uh, Lolita Taub is a VC who just launched the community fund. So they're they're specifically a venture capital firm that is focused on, you know, companies building communities and companies building tools for companies building communities. You know, there's, there's a whole sort of uh, circle of that. Uh, Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff. And then there's also, you know, a a couple of books that people really like. So Nadia Igbal, Working in Public, has some sense of community building in her sort of stadiums and, and whatever and village metaphors, yep. uh, and Lies Oliveira has a book on hacking communities, mm. which I uh, haven't, which I haven't read, but um, I, I've definitely singled that out for reading up. Anyway, that's just my resource dump, and I'm, I'm keeping this list because I think it's a it's a growing knowledge base of what it means to run a community and uh, what are all the different ideas that people are bringing to their communities. Awesome! Thanks for sharing that. So zooming out a bit to a question
1: that I ask pretty much every guest on the show, what do you think is the secret to building things developers love?
0: <laughs> so in that tweet about developer marketing, I actually also mentioned another concept, which is a wow moment. right? And I actually expanded upon, upon that by saying like, a wow moment should be something that inspires you to talk to your friends, uh, like tell your friends about it it makes your jaw literally drop and it makes you never want to go back to the old way of doing things again it, it creates like a clear before and after like there was you before seeing this demo or seeing this tool and then there's you after and it creates a gap because it makes everything that you used to do before the old way like you didn't even used to call it the old way it, it just became the old way once you saw this new thing and i think developers love something that takes away some pain that they might you know feel at their core, but maybe sometimes they don't even know that they have it. So I'll give you one example, which is uh, Prettier in the JavaScript ecosystem. Anyone could have built Prettier in any of JavaScript's 25 years of existence, but nobody did. Until it's just some just uh, some, well, I know it's Christopher Chadeau, but um, <laughs> you know someone just went like, hey, Go has this really nice formatting tool. What if we just had that in JavaScript, and what if it was just standard? And he built it, and now it is standard. In the span of <laughs> like two to three years in JavaScript, uh, which is like massive, and people love prettier for what it does, which is pretty funny. Like the thing is, you will never make everyone happy. Uh, there, there's a very s- strong band of people in JavaScript who don't like prettier for their own reasons, but you make a lot of people happy, and they and they do say that they love prettier. So I think that's that's one of those examples where like there was an old way, which is you manually formatted your code and you had code review. Stand up meetings where you argued over the spacing. Like I, I have had, I've been in those meetings. Okay. <laughs> and then there's an after with, with this tool where you no longer spend any time on that because you just have a standardized tool that it just does all that for you. So I like that. And I think, I think that's one example of making things that developers love. Hmm. Aside from beautiful code, I always ask people, what's, what's one thing you're loving right now? I'm loving transistor.fm for hosting my podcasts. Um, I do run a couple of small podcasts, nothing like yours, um, but it makes it very easy to host stuff and generate a website for you. And yeah, it just takes away all the all the pain for me that I don't want to do. So I'll pick Transistor. I guess I'll also pick Stripe um, mm. because it's such an easy, you know, I, I wrote a book and I, I run the, in the entire fulfillment from beginning to end. And uh, Stripe Checkout was just such an easy thing to integrate that yeah, uh, you know, I happily pay them their three percent or whatever, they, whatever it is. Yeah, not a very non-consensus pick <laughs> to pick Stripe, but uh, I do have to give them credit. Well, you've been super generous with your time
1: today. We've covered a lot of really fascinating topics. If people want to learn more about you and what you're working on, where where online would you send them to go do that?
0: Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my Twitter is where I'm most active, so twitter.com slash swix. And you can find my blog at swix.io to get of all my talks and book and whatever else you want to find out about these ideas. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Developer Love. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and tell a friend. You can learn more about Orbit at orbit.love podcast and follow us on Twitter at orbitmodel.